Hi, I'm Susan. And this is Diane. And this is When Autumn Comes. Look, life sometimes just looks different than we thought it would. This is a podcast for mamas and for people who love them, whose lives were flipped upside down as a doctor looked into our eyes and explained our child's prognosis. Or for the mamas who get very little sleep as they face symptoms and behaviors that just aren't typical for other children. This is a place where we can take on this journey together because we know that this can be a sad, lonely, misunderstood path. But we also know that as colder temperatures and darker days begin to appear, so do the golden leaves and beautiful sunsets of autumn. We know that life comes in seasons. We know that in our world, 24 hours can hold so much change that it feels like four seasons in one day. We are here to let you share your story, let you laugh and let you cry, let you learn and let you grow together with other mothers when autumn comes. Once upon a time, my family went on vacation to Florida to check Disney World and princesses and everything magical off of Lorelai's bucket list. Well, that trip didn't really go as planned. We ended up in the ICU for 18 days. Lorelai was intubated for eight of those days. And yeah, we said goodbye to my kid many times. It was the first time that Lorelai was ever sick. And I remember one of the ICU doctors, not the one you're about to meet, but another one came down and met me in the ED and was like, so what's your sick plan? I was like, we don't, we don't have a sick plan. This is new for us. He's like, in almost two years, your kid has never been sick. I was like, absolutely. Laurel, I had the flu and we are very lucky that she came home. In the meantime, I met Dr. Jenna Wheeler and, you know, this is something we didn't touch on in the interview. But I have to tell you, this woman, when she wasn't our doctor, made me promise that I would leave the hospital. But when you're 12 and a half hours from home and you know no one, where are you going to go? So she came by one day and was like, hey, have you have you left yet? I was like, uh, do you want me to lie to you? She was like, well, let's go for a walk. Now, I thought like any other medical mom who has been spending, I don't know, at that point, it was probably 10 ish, 15 days in the ICU. I thought she meant like around the hospital. And so we start walking and we walk outside. I'm like, okay, she meant like outside around the hospital and we keep walking. And then I find myself in a parking garage and I think, you know, maybe I should call my husband. I've seen a lot of datelines. And this woman, (laughs) she's like, get in the car. So I got in the car because when the ICU doctor who was saving your kid's life tells you to get in a car, you get in the car. And we drove and she found a lake and she said, now get out and walk. And she walked with me and we walked and we walked and I looked for alligators and I focused on walking and not being in that ICU room. It was one of the most compassionate, moving moments of the entire medical mom journey that I've been on. It is something that will always stick with me and I will forever be grateful for Dr. Jenna Wheeler for more reasons than just saving my kid's life. Mostly saving my kid's life, but there's so many other things. So guys, meet Dr. Wheeler. We're here today with Jenna Wheeler. She is Dr. Jenna Wheeler from Arnold Palmer Hospital in Orlando, Florida. And Jenna, can you tell us what 
what do you do? What is your job? Why are you, why are you here, Jenna? (laughs) I am one of the pediatric critical care physicians um, in Orlando who gets to meet people from all over because everyone comes to Orlando. And unfortunately when they're there, kids often get sick. So we not only take care of the kids here in Orlando, but it let me meet Susan from Virginia and lots of other kids throughout the country. I heard some of the nurses say it's called like the curse of the mouse. Is that really? Yeah. I mean, people, you know, everyone calls it the magic kingdom, obviously. So there's, you know, the whisperings of the tragic kingdom sometimes. Oh, the tragic kingdom. Yes. That's cute. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure Disney wouldn't appreciate that. No, not so much. There are some rumblings there. Um, I have a question. Yes. Can you describe what critical care exactly is versus like in NICU, PICU doctor? What is what exactly is critical care? So critical care is anything from birth up until I mean, even some of our patients are in their early 20s. Um, if they're kids with kind of chronic complex medical issues that they haven't quite graduated over to the adult side or there just aren't good adult services for them for whatever condition they have. Okay. Um, NICU, NICU kind of is a when you come out at birth and you have problems and you're either born prematurely or you instantly have to have an intensive care level. You stay in the NICU, which is neonatal intensive care, until you're ready to go home. Then once you go home, you come to me instead of going back to the NICU. So that's where we kind of get all of the ages. Um, we only take care of kids who require like cardiac monitoring or respiratory monitoring or have complex problems enough that they need a higher level of care that like a pediatrician or hospitalist couldn't provide. So are you in clinic, hospital, both? Only hospital and only inpatient in, um, we have our hospital in particular has a step down unit and an ICU. So I just, I only cover the intensive care portions of the hospital. And then do you typically see patients reoccurring or is it kind of like a revolving door of the, depending on the care that they need, they come into the hospital, you care for them, they leave, you see a new one. It kind of all depends. Um, for kids who, you know, have a bicycle accident who are otherwise healthy and then come back in those kids, ideally we, you know, get them better and never see them again. Um, for other kids who with, you know, complex medical issues or chronic issues, we, see them much more frequently, I think, than I ever even realized when I was going into this. When I Originally, when I was in medicine, I was thinking of doing hematology. And one of the things of critical care was I didn't want to I didn't want to lose the continuity. I didn't want to, you know, see a patient on a Monday and never know what happened to them. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like looking back now, it's kind of the irony of, you know, I can be off for a week or two at work and go back to work. And I still know half the names on the list because they're okay. kids that have either been there a long time or kids that, you know, are just coming kind of back in for a tune up or, you know, they got a cold. And now, you know, unfortunately it puts them in the hospital, whereas another kid could be at home and be fine. So we really do see a lot of the same, you know, families in, in that section over and over again. Interesting. Yeah. I, I've always kind of wondered the same, like if it's new kids often, but I'm sure you have the frequent flyers that you're like, Oh yeah, they're back. And it's a pretty good mix. I, but is it comforting to see the frequent flyers or is it like, Oh crap, they're back. Like, (laughs) well, I I mean more for them, not for you, but, Oh, or both. (laughs) I mean, I think it, it depends on the circumstance. 
Um, for some of the kids who don't come in very often, it's kind of nice to see because you can kind of see, you know, you haven't been here in a year. What's happened in life in this last year and and what are you doing and what are the families up to and what are your other siblings up to? And, and so that's kind of nice to check in. But for some of it, it's just sad because some of these kids, especially some of the ones that live in like a long-term care facility that just kind of bounce between the care facility and the hospital, it, it's, you feel bad for them. You feel bad that they're sick again, that they're getting poked for IVs again, like that this, that this is what their life looks like, that, you know, I, I can't fix them. I know I can't. And sometimes you just feel on this side of it that, you know, what am I doing to help them versus just harming them? And obviously we're doing everything we can to get them better. But like I said, every IV poke, every, you know, shot that they get, every respiratory therapy that you can tell they're grimacing through, it kind of makes you pause and, Sometimes it's hard. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I wish I could do more for them. We had some pre-interview questions and you told us that you were a medical kid mm-hmm. and that's kind of what led you here. So when you're, and we'll, we'll get to that in one second, but when you are treating these kids, do you ever see your childhood in what's going on? Like, I mean, you spent a handful of time in the hospital. I do. Um, and I think it, it probably gives me a few soapboxes that I wouldn't have otherwise. Um, one of my big ones is you don't ever lie to a kid. You don't ever tell them something's not going to hurt if it's going to hurt. You know, you say it's going to be uncomfortable for a minute, but then it's going to get better. But you don't. I mean, I had that. I had the, you know, it's not going to hurt as they jam two needles into your thigh. Well, you know, I had chest yeah. tubes where the doctor, it was some probably resident or fellow, you know, told me pulling the chest tube out after my surgery wasn't going to hurt. Mm. You know, I kind of joke now that if he was having a heart attack in front of me, like, I don't know if I would help. Like, <laughs> it hurt. It hurt bad yeah. enough. that I'm, My mom talked about having to leave the floor because I was crying so loud that she just couldn't hear it. And so I, I'm much, I think it puts that sensitivity into perspective of why are we getting a blood draw now if we know you're going to be sedated in an hour and it's not going to change anything? Like, let's wait for that hour when you're asleep. Let's get it then. And trying yeah. to, you know, to juggle that. But like I said, above all, it's honesty. You know, we see kids in tragic situations. You, you can't lie to them. You can't tell them that a parent wasn't hurt in that car accident either. You can't tell them anything that's not true or that trust will never be regained. Mm-hmm. Are you surprised or how, how do you correlate like the resiliency of the kids, like knowing what you went through, treating these patients, do you ever get surprised or are you like, no, these kids are so resilient, like watching what you have to do to them or for them and how they, the pain is there. And then they come out on the other side, like, okay, what's next? Is that ever surprising? It's a lot of why I went into pediatrics. You know, I I can, a six-year-old who's crying and whining about something, I can handle that any day. A 36-year-old? Absolutely not. Like, I just, I can't do that. <laughs> um, but I think that's why, like, kids just handle things so much better. If you're upfront with them, if you talk them through it, you know, they kind of have this resolve that I think a lot of adults don't even have, that they kind of find a place that they can get through it. And we try to, you know, obviously in pediatrics, we try to make it as comfortable as possible um, compared to some adult procedures where it just happens and you just have to deal with it. So what kids are, I mean, I see it, you see it a lot in like the cancer kids. I mean, they, they say things to you when their parents are out of the room that, you know, their parents have been trying to hide from them because they don't know how to tell their child these things. And the kids know, and you see that, you see the kids realizing, you know, we had, 
a child recently talking about wanting to go home and, you know, people are looking at him going, you know, oh, yeah, you, you want to go home and be, you know, play with your toys and that. And like, that wasn't the home he was talking about. And you realize like mm-hmm. these little kids, like they just, they know, they know what's happening. And so I think being able to talk with them and, you know, yeah, they get scared and they cry and they say, don't touch me and get away. But at the end of the day, like, they really know that you're trying to help. That is so beautiful and so like heartbreaking and warming all at the same time. So you were a heart kid. Yeah. How old were you when you went through everything you went through? So when I had my first heart procedure, I was eight. Um, and I remember that one. I was actually, I was only kind of semi asleep for that. So they actually, they let me choose music playing in the background and kind of all those things. Like I, I remember bits and pieces of kind of fading in and out. Um, and then when I had my open heart surgery, I was nine. So enough that, again, I remember being in the ICU, you know, I remember telling the nurse, the oxygen smells bad, get it off my face or I'm going to throw up. She didn't take it off. I threw up on her shoes. I remember those things. I mean, I'm glad you haven't changed that much from, <laughs> I'm glad nine-year-old like, Jenna was I warned you. just as snarky <laughs> as you. And I didn't feel bad for it. Like I gave her a warning. Um, but I remember those things. You know where your kid gets it from now. I remember, you know, the, all the treatments afterward and such. And, and then having a final heart procedure when I was a grown-up, um, just kind of secondary to everything mm-hmm. else I had gone through. So I think that was because of being at those ages and being aware of it all, it was a different experience than, you know, some of the kids who go through procedures when they're so young that they don't remember it, but it does, it leaves, it leaves lasting things with you. I, you know, even now, like people joking around, if they kind of bear hug me, if it's more than a few seconds, I get panicky. And it's that feeling of someone's holding me down because I had to get held down for so many things as a kid. And, and I think we've come so far in the years since I was a kid to now of child life and realizing the importance of you don't hold down a kid if you don't have to, like there's different distraction methods. And, you know, back when I was a kid, like they just strong armed you and you were a kid and you dealt with it and it was going to be over and, and no one really thought about how it would kind of impact you going forward. That's really cool. I mean, it's not cool, but like to think about everything that goes on behind the scenes on how to care for your child, because child life specialists are amazing, but I've never thought, you know, I know in our situation, it's like, what, what more tricks do you have that you can pull out of your back pocket to just, you know, like you think they bring the toys, but I've never thought about the stress and trauma of being held down and then saying like, I don't want, I don't want hugs. Don't touch me. And then there's me that's like, I want to hug, bring, bring it in, I'm going to hug you. But now I'm like, no, I'm going to respect people because you don't know why they feel that way. And to hear you say that as a kid, that that's how you felt. And my children are both nonverbal. And right now we're really struggling with um, Laurel. I did another 16-day stretch in the ICU recently, and we're struggling really badly with anxiety and for her and me, but we're talking about her right now. We've had to put her on Prozac and we've had to like try a bunch of different things. And to hear you say like, yeah, like somebody holding me down, you know, it makes sense that my kid is struggling right now. She just had two brain surgeries and, you know, and I, think she's resilient, like Diane was saying, but I don't know what's going on in her head. 
it's just, it's kind of comforting to hear that you were tortured um, <laughs> and that you are okay. But no, I, I actually really appreciate hearing that. So how did you, with that trauma, turn that into, like, like what was the force of, I want to do this as opposed to, I never want to step foot in a hospital again. How did that come to fruition for you? I think a lot of kids who are in my situation, it kind of is one of those paths. It goes one way or the other. It's either I want to stay in medicine and be able to use what I've had, you know, done to me to help others. Or it's like you said, it's get me the heck away from here. I'm never going in a hospital again. For me, it was, I wanted to be a doctor from a really young age. And everyone says that, you know, everyone, like every little two-year-old walks around, like, I'm going to be a firefighter. I'm going to be a doctor. And everyone's like, okay, honey. Yeah, sure. You know, we'll see what you what you want to do. And I think it was different for me. I said that when I was little and I was fortunate enough to have people around me who were like, okay, great. And as I got older and kept saying the same thing, it was, okay, well, here's how we're going to get you here. My, um, my cardiologist was amazing. You know, every time I told him I wanted to be a doctor, he said, okay, well, then that's what you're going to do. Never doubted me. As soon as I was old enough, even in like middle school, he would have me come shadow him for an afternoon. I did the same in high school and medical school. And I mean, he just, he took it seriously. And so for me, that was, that was huge. And I had a family who supported that as well. I think there were times later when my family saw everything I, you know, went through with medical school and residency and fellowship and kind of getting here that they're like, really? Like kind of wish you, you know, wanted to like run a bake shop or something. But, you know, I think that was just kind of something in me of wanting to be on the other side and, and maybe going back, it was, had something to do with control and, you know, you can, you kind of have control on the other side because kind of being on this side. And then when I have family members who get sick, I went through the loss of my mom and her, you know, about with cancer, it's awful to be back on that side and to feel like there's no control and you're relying on all of these strangers to come in who are telling you the best thing to do for your mom and, you know, you've got family members being the medical person in the family. There's family members looking at me going, you know, what do you think? And it's kind of like, well, first off, I do pediatrics. So it's not, you know, it's not my wheelhouse, but yet they're going to listen to whatever I say. And I've got this person who I'm looking at going, you know, I've never met you. You walked in the room. My mom's critical. Like I'm supposed to believe you. And so it, it, it's mm-hmm. kind of seeing that balance of, you know, I think maybe some of it for me was being able to be on this side, to be the physician, to have that control, to assure that the kids aren't getting held down when it's not absolutely necessary. And if we do have to hold them down, we're doing it in the, the gentlest possible way. We're explaining everything. We are telling them the truth. And it kind of gave me back that that voice that I probably didn't have when I was little. And I think, too, as somebody who has been a mom of a patient of yours, there are a lot of defining moments in Lorelai's story. But the one moment of me laying there holding my kid as all of her vitals were just going downhill quick and me looking you in the eye and saying, what do I do? And you just took a moment to like connect with me as a mom, like mom to mom. It wasn't doctor. It wasn't, it was just a moment that will forever stick with me. And you, you, I, you didn't talk to me like, 
a doctor. You talk to me like a human. And I mean, I will forever appreciate that. And I mean, I don't, I don't know if you do that with everybody or just crazy Virginia moms whose kids show up. And like you said, like we were thrown into, I'm a medical mom. I'm used to being in the hospital, but we were thrown into a foreign hospital. We had no clue who anybody was. We knew nothing of, I literally Googled nearest children's hospital and ended up there. So it's scary going into situations like that. And you didn't let your guard down because I was afraid of you. Thank you. <laughs> I was afraid of you. Um, but you also, you talked to us like humans and you didn't talk to us like we didn't understand what was going on. And I think from a mom's perspective, just to have a doctor who saw the gravity of the situation that was about to play out and you gave us time and you let us process and you intubated the heck out of my kid and she survived. Like, I mean, we're very, very lucky, but you are one of those doctors that saw us as people and not as patients just coming and going. And I'm just very grateful for you. So. Thank you. And I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. Can I ask you something? I mean, I'm about to like relate what you do to being a hairdresser and there will be a point to this. But when I was in school, they were like, you can teach somebody how to cut hair, how to color hair, like the technical ability. You can always teach somebody to do that. You cannot teach somebody how to connect with a person necessarily. Do they teach you those skills in medical school? Like, do they say, hey, stop what you're doing, connect with the parent, connect with the patient? Or, and and this may be hard for you to answer because it may be like feeling like you're bragging, but I really am curious to know, is that just like a gift that some professionals have or do they kind of encourage that in school? There's two parts to that. They do, depending on, I think, what school you go to and what type of medicine you choose to go into, there's probably more of a focus on that than some other specialties and places. Um, when I was in medical school, we had a section on you know, breaking bad news and where you would have to sit down with a fake patient and tell them bad news. And, you know, it was always really awkward because you weren't giving the person bad news. Like they're pretending to be sad, but they're not really sad. And so for me, I think those ones were actually harder than just the real one when you can respond to a person's true emotions and, and grief and whatever they're going through at that time. And I think, you know, and at our hospital, they do those, the same type of programs they've done, you know, through the NICU, through the ER, and they, they draw in the residents and they really try to, to teach that and to use that curriculum to help. But, you know, having seen a lot of trainees go through and, and, you know, working with a bunch of people, I think that there is something innate in some people. There's some people that are always going to be able to connect better than others. And there's some people who I just, you know, whatever personality and such or, or whatever they bring to the table, like they're not going to be able to connect. And maybe that's their own defense mechanism. Maybe that's how they have to go home at night is to stay so far removed. Um, you know, we, we talk sometimes amongst those of us who I work with of people wouldn't believe the things that we see and the tragedies that we see and some of the horrific things that you see. And then, you know, I go home and I bake sugar cookies. And it's just kind of this weird split of, you know, home life sometimes versus work life and how crazy different that they are. You know, I think I look at things 
and I've said to families too, you know, I'm, I'm not going to recommend something for your child that I wouldn't do for my own. You know, if it's time to intubate your child, I'm not going to intubate your child when I wouldn't let someone do that to mine. If I would say, you know what, I would give my child another couple hours before I'd let someone do that, then I'm going to give your child another couple hours as long as, you know, the circumstance allows. And I think that's kind of always been my guide of, you know, where my suggestions come from is thinking in my head of, okay, how would I want to be on this side of it as a mom? You know, but then also having to find a way to, you know, you get all of that out of there and still stay really objective in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. That takes a lot. Of, I mean, I give you guys props because it's not, it can't be one or the other. Like you have to be a doctor and know exactly what to do on a dime, but also cohesively like have that emotional support and control and put those two things together at the same time. It it's, requires a lot of skill. Well, and I think it's, you know, I think sometimes ICU in particular, it kind of gets this vibe of being callous at times. And sometimes we are. And, you know, it, the snarky jokes that go around the, you know, the laughter people hear at the nursing station at night while they're, you know, having a horrible moment with their child inside the room. It's, you know, it's not people trying to be insensitive. It's just that sometimes the only way to get through what we've seen, the only way to go from a room over here where you know that all that's coming for that family is tragedy, whether they've realized it or not, but then going into the next room where, thank goodness, that kid's going to do better and they're going to be discharged home in two days and go on with their life. And to be able to kind of move between those rooms and, and stuff, it, you know, I think sometimes we tend to go to that, you know, quote unquote, dark humor. And we tend to, you know, you, you just have to find a way where you can reset and it is hard. And, and we try, you know, you try to know which rooms are the rooms that are grieving right now. And we try to, you know, keep our voices down and we try to, you know, to make sure the laughter isn't outside those rooms. But at the same time, you know, you don't want, you don't want to show the family that there's not some normalcy out there too, in the middle of everything going on. Right. And you guys are humans. I mean, <laughs> you have to keep going. Um, did anything change for you in your practice before kids to after kids? Like any anxieties, any um, like detachment, I don't want to say issues, but like, was it harder to detach after you had children? Yeah, it definitely is. Um, It's for me, it's more, I think I've, I can separate it pretty well until the child looks like my child. So, you know, I have a little girl. So if it's a boy, like I'm okay with that. Not that it's not terrible and all of that, but I don't, I I can keep my emotions and and keep my kind of that mom side in in check more. Um, If it's a little girl or it's a child the same size as my daughter, it's much harder for me with that. You know, and when you see, you know, Orlando is a huge trauma area or the trauma center for, for Orlando. And so you see all these kids who you know, at 12.09 PM were a perfectly happy, healthy fifth grader riding their bike down the street. And at 12.10, they're neurologically devastated. And so you see those things and you're, it's, you know, kind of that, oh my gosh, like that could have been my kid. Like that could be, this, this family is legitimately living my worst nightmare right now. And, you know, I have to go in and tell them. 
you know, a lot of times, especially if they're coming from outside hospitals, everything has happened so quickly in trying to get the child from a different hospital over to the trauma center that families haven't even gotten the full updates. So they're showing up to us, not even, you know, not knowing the gravity of the situation. And, and those ones are harder, especially, like I said, if it's, if I can kind of relate it to my daughter's age or size or her friends and those things. And that's why, you know, as bad as it sounds, like now that my daughter's a little older, when it's a real little kid, it's kind of like, okay, like I, I can keep myself separate on that one, that one, while it's really sad and in that, I don't feel that tug. Yeah. We're going to take a quick pause. Hey, are you a medical or special needs mom? Yeah. Yeah, you. I'm talking to you. We have a club called the 4AM Mom Club. It's a bunch of us moms. We get together. We, I don't know. We, we talk about life and kids and we have some really cool professionals who have kind of come in and we have a fascia fix and we have a home organizer and we have all these cool people who are coming to love on mamas like us. So join the club. If you go to www.4am-mom-club.com, you can get more information and join us. There's actually a video of Diane and I talking. So if you want to see our faces, you could go there and watch. See you there. So if you were talking to a couple medical moms, hypothetically, um, (laughs) as a medical mom, I would want to say to you as a doctor, when I am in your place of business, it is my worst day ever. And we, me personally have dealt not with you, but like with residents and like, it's always been a push for me to make especially the young doctors realize that like, this is my worst day ever right now. What does it feel like on the other side when you see me sitting there knowing that I am having my worst day ever? What does it feel like for you? Is it just another day at work? Which is totally a good answer because it has to be just another day at work. Like, what would you tell me if I was the mom sitting across from you hypothetically in a very small conference room and you knew it was my worst day ever? You know, I think the biggest thing that I have learned, and I think you you brought up the point of kind of residents and younger doctors and kind of coming in and not having that recognition that it's your worst day ever. And I think it's the realization over time that you get to of first acknowledging that, acknowledging that, you know, while it's 1130 and I'm thinking about what I might have for lunch, like you're thinking about whether you're going to take your child home from this hospital. And, you know, taking the time, you know, and and making sure that the doctors take the time to answer your questions. And, you know, for me, it's the realization, you know, and I, I don't know if I said it to you, but I know I've said it to some families of, you know, I get a snapshot of your kid. You're with your child 24 seven, 365 days a year. And I come in, you know, for five minutes here and there and get this little snapshot view and, you know, trying to, as someone who teaches residents, you moms know, like you may not be able to tell me what's wrong with your child, you know, but it's kind of that. I'm like, if you go into a room of a medically complex child and that mom is saying, I don't know what's wrong, but something's wrong. You have to take that seriously. Oh, thank you. (laughs) But it it is true. You know, I, like your, your kid isn't every other kid, you know, Susan, I know what drugs I would never give your kid again, you know, but we didn't know till we tried, but the next child's going to be different. And so, you know, I, I think it's that 
when you come in and you're younger and you've read the books and you know the you've gotten the MD or DO behind your name and you're a doctor now and you know all these things, like I would love to see one of those residents try to do even for six hours what you guys do every single day. There's no way that poor resident would be crying in the corner. I would probably be crying in the corner and I at least can manage airways and do all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I've, I've watched you at Disney world with like 18 syringes and you and your husband are just like handing them back and forth, pushing them into the G tube. And, you know, that's with one kid and I'm over here. Like I remind my kid to use her inhaler before bed and she does it herself. Cause you know, usually she's like, I've already done it, mom. And I think that's what people don't realize. I think it's the, and yeah, they're, you know, the kind of medical mom can kind of get that rap of being not aggressive, but kind of sometimes maybe pushy is the word that sometimes people use. And, but why would you not be like, why would you not be advocating for, we all advocate for our child. I advocate for my child when a kid's mean to her on the street, you know, whereas like you're, you're doing the exact same thing, but you're advocating just to get them through another day. And so I think that's what I would tell moms is to, is to keep advocating. I'd much rather have a parent that's advocating for their child than the kid who gets admitted to the PICU that I don't see the parents for three weeks until they have to come pick them up. I have to say, if I can, that that feels so good to hear because we were just at an appointment, a very first appointment with a behavioral psychologist. And like, During COVID, obviously, this has just been hard to have my child that is so social, nonverbal, but social, be at home. And I looked at this woman and I thought in my head before I said this, like, A, my my husband would tell me, don't ask these questions. I can't answer them. Nothing is relative when you don't have anybody that's walking in your, your same shoes. And I looked at the psychologist and I was like, you see people on the daily. Is what I'm doing hard? Or am I just falling apart and my threshold really not there anymore? Because I think that you lose that. Um, you just lose where you are in the whole journey. And, you know, I'm like, this is so hard for me. I can't do this anymore. I can't handle the tantrums. I can't handle the screaming at me. And she was like, yes, what you're doing is really hard. So I love that you just, you know, kind of told Susan that what she does is really hard because I think we forget that it's not normal, you know? So I appreciate that. You make it look normal. I mean, we had a, we had a family go home for the first time with a tracheostomy and a ventilator. And, you know, we had had them scheduled for discharge on a Monday and just watching the panic in this mom getting close to that time and realizing, you know, and so we halted it and said, okay, absolutely not Monday. Like, let's give you till later in the week. Those, and you just watch that relief melt away or not melt away, but like kind of come on to her. And she was so relieved to, you know, I said, don't, don't focus on the date you're going home. Just focus on what we need to teach you. And, you know, I, I said, I, I talk about these other families. They said, you know, I'll, I'll walk in a room of someone who the family has had a trach an event that they've dealt with for years. And the mom will have the whole conversation. You know, it's like you'd think she was like cooking dinner at the stove because she's just doing this and suctioning and attaching this and doing that. And just like looking over her shoulder, talking to you. I mean, you, you would think that you were just in the kitchen during holiday time and things are just happening and the comfort level, you know, and I'm over here as someone who works with them going like, if you told me that I had to take care of it by myself for the day, like I would be incredibly anxious, you know, and once 
you're able to tell kind of the new mom who's going home all that. I said, you know, I said, I'd be worried too. And it's kind of like, you would, of course, like this isn't, you know, when you have a baby, this isn't what you ever picture that your life is going to look like. You, you do these things because your parents and because this is what you do for your kids, but it's not what you would have ever pictured, you know? And I told her, I said, you know, you'll come back down the road. I said, and you will be amazed at just how second, you know, second nature that this becomes, but it shouldn't be second nature in the beginning. And it shouldn't even ever really be, you know, quote unquote normal, but to you it is because this is what your kid requires. And we all do what our kids require, you know, regardless of what that looks like, but no, it's definitely, I, I have, you know, Susan, I've, I've seen you with one and now with two and I can't imagine. Well, and it's funny because I remember, I remember standing in that really dark room because we had the room that looked out at a brick wall for um, 18 days. (laughs) Right, right. Um, But we had a window, so, and a door. Um, That's a step up from some of the ICUs we've been in. So I remember sitting in there with you saying, how can I do, like, how could we have another kid? Like, and... I don't know why or how we got to that conversation, but you just said, you'll figure it out just like you have. You'll figure it out. I'm like, yeah, but I just, I don't. And here I am with two kids with this disease. And I, I, I don't have a lot to say in this episode because I'm really like, I just admire you a lot and everything that you've done for my family in that two-week period. And I feel like if I talk too much, I'm just going to cry. And um, we had we had a good conversation or two. And you saw me as a mom who was sad and confused and terrified. And you still listened to everything we had to say. And my kid quickly taught you that she rules the roost. And that, I mean, my quit, my kid very quickly taught everyone in your hospital that she follows no rules. And I think as a rare disease mom who was in a scary place, who almost lost her kid, I just, it was, we were absolutely at the right place with the right doctors and you guys listened to us and we lucked out that time. We got really lucky. Because did you know that in order to get a kid home from Florida after they pass, you can FedEx or UPS them. We got that far into the journey of how do we get Lorelai home if this hits the fan? And um, we were going to opt for FedEx. I don't, we are not sponsored by FedEx or you UPS. Be for podcast. <laughs> we are not sponsored. They are not partners with us, but we are going to offer FedEx. I just felt like they were a bit more higher yeah. end. They're not brown. I like their colors better. That's what, that's what Dr. Wheeler and yeah, I were we, saying. The colors I mean, are better. What else do you discuss like, on a day of, you know, which carrier that you would use? And I, I, right. I, will, branding I will never is like, think of FedEx. No. And then when I came back to visit you, do you remember the, I came, when we redid Disney, Mike and I wanted to bring cookies to the Mm -hmm. nurses and 
when we were checking in at the front gate, there was a UPS man oh, checking no. in to like drop off a wheelchair or something. Oh. Like he had like a big old wheelchair box thing. And I remember like texting you a picture and being like, there's a, there's a UPS man in front of me in line. Like whose kid has to go home to Florida in the UPS truck? Who didn't pick um, FedEx? <laughs> no, they didn't pick FedEx. <sighs> okay. Can I ask one more question? And I think it was something that you had put in our like pre-interview questions about, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you had said the dreaded, what were you, what would you do if this was your kid? Can you just speak to that? I know we kind of touched a little bit on it, but is that a dreaded, truly a dreaded question? It is for me at least. You know, I can't speak to everybody. I think it is for me because like I said, I, I try to put everything in terms of what would I do if it were my child. And I, and I don't say that lightly because obviously, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that my child isn't in the position that a lot of these kids are. Um, so I, I don't say it with the implication that I could ever truly imagine what it is, but just saying it from a place of what would I imagine I would want for my child. And so when you ask that question of, you know, what would you do if this was your kid? Again, it always follows. You can see it coming because you're sitting with a family you know, the tears have already come, you know, someone looks up at you. A lot of times it's actually the dad, even more than the mom. And it's kind of that first question is, do you have kids of your own? And it's kind of inside, you're like, oh, here it comes. Like, it's, you know, I'm like, yes, yeah, I, I do. Um, and then there it is. It's, well, what would you do? If this was your kid, what would you do? Or what would you want? And I take that as seriously as anything that I offer a family. And I think that's why maybe for me, it's that dreaded question because it, it's, you know, it it forces you, it forces you to kind of get past that objective. I'm staying over here, my walls up, my guards up and to be able to, you know, to connect and it's hard. And I, and I think it's the, you know, realizing the seriousness. And I, Susan, I remember you were laying on that bed and you asked, you know, what do we do? And this, that was when we were talking about, do we intubate? Do we not intubate? And realizing, you know, the, what I said matter. The answer was we intubate or you cuddle her now. Yeah. And that, and, and that, and, and realizing the gravity of what I have to say is going to make a family's decision. Had I at that moment told you with Lorelai, you know what, I really don't think we should do this. I think, you know, we're at, we're at the end and that there aren't other things for us to offer. You wouldn't have had the last years that you've had with her, you know? And, and so that's where it seems like that. I don't take, take lightly that, you know, in that situation, we went ahead and we intubated and we got her through that and it's amazing. And she was able to recover from it and, you know, it, I think that's where I, where I dread that question is because I would never want to lead a family down a path that they would then look back and say, I wonder if we'd done it differently. I wonder if we'd gone ahead and made a different decision. Um, but at the same time, that's a heavy weight. It is, yeah. it, it is, but it's, it's also, I think, well, it's a dreaded question. I think it is a fair question. I think it's a fair question to say to the doctor sitting in front of you that you've probably never met before, or if you have, it's been for, you know, 30 minutes over the course of a couple of days, I'm giving all this advice on what to do for the most precious thing in your life. Like it's kind of fair that you ask me some tough questions. And you did it while wearing very nice high heels. Like you didn't <laughs> topple at all. 
Like I can't even walk in flats and you just like rock the heels the whole time. I don't know. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you help families and wear high heels like that are not one inch. So you're not a croc you're not a croc wearer no, then. I'm a, I'm a heels person. <laughs> no, I do every day. Every day, yeah. When I'm not not post call, yes. But I do have flip flops in my car, as Susan knows. Yes, <laughs> as I know. So we've talked about work and just to make you a little bit more human for the crazies out here that want to know, like you bake cookies. You, what do you do when you're outside of the hospital? Like you leave the hospital and you have a life outside of the hospital. What do you do? What's fun? Um, I run and do yoga. Those are my stress relief of trying to get past everything that my day at work entailed and be able to come home and, and be a mom and be a wife and kind of live it, live a different life. When I'm working, it's harder to separate that out because, you know, Diane, you made a comment in the beginning about, you know, wanting to think that they're just thinking about your kid at night and all the time. And, and sometimes we are, I mean, there's times when my morning run before I go into work is, you know, trying to figure out what the plan of the day is going to look like. And then that usually entails pulling a few articles. And then by by the time I'm in the shower, it's okay. So this is what we're going to do. This is the plan for the day. Here's how we're going to go. You know, but then by the time I pick up my daughter from school, it has to be, you know, the realization that a kid being mean on the playground could be the worst possible thing for her or the little bruise that's, you know, on her arm, which, you know, I'm kind of like, well, if you're not bleeding out, like you're okay. And so it's trying to, you know, to put that in perspective. So for me, running and yoga, I mean, I live by Disney. So pre-COVID and in all of this, we were at Disney a ton and Universal and just kind of out and about and... It's, it's just kind of living life. It's, you know, people think of Orlando as how can you have kind of a normal life because everyone thinks of it as a tourist place, but it's really just a normal city with great weather. And Susan, you still need to move down here. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on it. I Maybe one day. Maybe. But yeah, but then I, like I said, I bake and cook and read books and it makes it sound like I have all this time, but... <laughs> How old is your daughter? She is about to turn 11. Oh, so boy. She, I'm sure she has my snarky humor and probably knows much more about the reality of life than than most kids her age would. But, you know, she sees it too. She, you know, she sees me come home from a bad day at work and, you know, she asks about it. And I've always, you know, been open with her and, and told her things. And, you know, she's, I'll go to work, you know, the next day and she'll, you know, hope no one dies today. Like that's not a typical comment that your 10, almost 11 year old says, but, but that's, that's our life. You know, when I look at her, I'm like, yeah, me too. Because some days you just don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, but then, then you have the exciting days where you don't have to send someone home in FedEx and they get to get in their 27 foot camper and make the journey back home. <laughs> Which yeah. where did you end up parking? We ended up leaving the RV at Fort Wilderness my mom ended up staying in the camper because we lived in Ronald McDonald and the parking lot for Ronald McDonald house was not mm-hmm. big enough for a 27 foot trailer. So weird. I'm, yeah, weird. When they not? rebuild that all, we'll make sure we put a space. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sitting in this tiny little conference room, which all, 
all parents who have ever been in those conference rooms know how terrible they are. Like you don't get good news in a conference room attached to an ICU. Like you just maybe don't. I should start taking parents there. Like maybe for the good news, I should start taking them to the conference room so that we can like turn this around. Yeah. <laughs> like maybe just have like a bar somewhere. Like yeah. we talked about like diffusing a little Ativan just through the you just yeah. <laughs> you walk in and just <laughs> but yeah, no, we're sitting there and I think this conversation first came when she crashed from the pick line and the ketamine. I think that this was the first conversation of she's not doing well. She crashed. We had to bag her for 20 minutes. Like we're never giving her that medicine again. And you're going to be here for a little while. And I was like, okay, well, where do we put our camper? (laughs) I beg your pardon? Like, well, like we have a camper here. Like we were supposed to be camping at Fort Wilderness. Where do we put our camper? <laughs> and you're like, I've never, never like told a mom, like you're going to be here. And the next question is like, where do we put the it's camper? Like, Jenna, like, I feel like you can answer a lot, I know, but, but like, that one just. That was like, the easiest of all the questions though that you had for me that day. <laughs> between like, <laughs> between what all of her labs were doing. And I know like Mike had the spreadsheet of everything going on and <laughs> And then the doctor at CHOP and then this. And, like, you're like, where do I put the camper? It's like, I can do this one. (laughs) I think I should be able to figure this out. Well, I feel like I want to say I'm so excited for people to get to listen to this because just being on the other side of the doctor is fascinating. And it's so comforting to me. And I think that I can speak for, you know, our abundance of listeners that we All have 36 of them. I know we have like 200 now. Triple digits. Okay. 200. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say thank you. That was really, that was really cool to hear. And I so, have to add, I'm going to interrupt. I know like we usually try to shoot for 30 minutes, but this conversation is still going. I have to add that for anybody who's listening and you're going through crap, my kid almost dying in Florida brought me Diane and Jenna. Because Diane found me through my Fridays with Lorelai's post while Lorelai was dying in Florida. I was going to say that. I The hospital bed that she was sitting in was at your hospital. And I saw this kid and I was like, that looks like my child. And this coming all full circle. And we just don't know how all of these stories play out. You can be knee deep in the scariest, worst day of your life. And however it plays out, it plays out. And some good things come out of some of the bad things and some Bad things come out of good things like trips to Disney World. Everything happens for a reason. And I know that's cheesy and cliche, and I hate when people say that to me. But here I am sitting with two people that I have I, – I mean, I consider you guys good friends. I don't know. I feel like we need to have like a defined relationship moment right now. Like, are we friends? Like, but yeah, we're, pretty, we're pretty close. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and you will not intubate my no. second kid. Um, <laughs> nope. So, Dr. Wheeler, what gives you hope? I think despite the kids that I don't get to send home with their families, the kids that I do get to send home with their families, and the kids that walk back in six months later or a year later and have memories that they can share that the family wouldn't have otherwise gotten to have. I think that's, at the end of the day, why I do this, because... As a mom, I cannot imagine what it's like to have to walk out of a hospital in a hospital room without your child. And 
So when I get to do that, when I get to send someone home with a child that either we anticipated all along they'd get to go home or, you know, in Lorelai's case, we didn't know. We didn't know how she'd be leaving that hospital. And to be able to send kids home with their families for however much time we get to do that, that's where the hope is. That's that's why I do this. That's why I show up. And that's why, you know, I put in the tragic days that I do and go run a few extra miles to try to be able to deal with it. Walk a lake or walk two. Walk a lake or two. It's gorgeous right now. Have those you need to walk the lake. <laughs> Diane, your lakes have too much snow. And Jenna, your lakes have alligators. So I think we're going to stay back. But I will say, I think it's 79 here today. Yes. What? Oh. I'm going to go sit up by the pool. It's not here. It's not here. Well, thank you for joining us. And um, we appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing my kids' life. We really do. (laughs) Thank you. Wow, it was so great to hear from Dr. Wheeler. Um, thank you so much for giving us your time. It's always nice to just hear such a different perspective on people, um, you know, that a lot of us deal with a lot of the time, or not deal with, but, you know, get advice and um, care from. And so it's just nice to um, hear about their job and kind of see them through a glass. So thank you again, uh, Dr. Wheeler. I completely agree. And I am still kind of speechless after having her here. So this is Susan and I'm going to go eat some key lime pie and pretend that I'm still in Florida. This is Diane and I have to get ready for work. Have a good week guys. We know you have so many choices on how to spend your time. Thank you so much for choosing to spend it with us. We would be honored to hear your unique, complicated, and hope-filled stories. We would love for you to connect with us and share your story on our website, www.whenautumncomes.com, and you can find us on social media at When Autumn Comes Podcast. Also, check us out at 4AM Mom Club, where we will be sharing our middle-of-the-night shenanigans, Etsy finds, Netflix faves, and other things to get us through. We would love for you to hit subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll continue to hear unique stories, feel a whole lot of comfort and connection, and hopefully share in a few laughs. We are new to the podcasting world, so this show is produced by yours truly. With hope and a whole lot of excitement, Diane and Susan. See you next time.